Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Efrat Schema from the Weizmann Institute of Science on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you got your PhD from the Weizmann Institute of Science in the year 2012. You then moved on to Harvard Medical School where you did your postdoc. And since 2017, you are heading your own lab and are assistant professor at the Weizmann Institute of Science again, and you are still there today. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? So first of all, thank you for um, inviting me here. And um, regarding your question, so for me, it's actually a very easy one. Um, so uh, I'm an identical twin sister. Um, and uh, as you know, since being a child, I was always um, interested by how, you know, my sister, how it, how it happens that my sister and I are, you know, identical, we look the same, but we are two different people. And that actually what got me interested, not, not only in biology in general and trying to understand, you know, genetics and how it works, but also in epigenetics. And what, you know, what is on top of the genetics? What makes two people different that it's not just in their genetic code? Yeah, I think that's, that's a very good reason to go into, into biology. I'm coming to your science uh, that centers around single molecule imaging of chromatin and the analysis of uh, nucleosomes circulating in plasma. So that's your more recent work. But I want to start in the year 2008. Back then you were working on histone H2B and its ubiquitination. Um, so what does H2B ubiquitination do? So, um, so as I said, I think that, you know, I started my career knowing that I'm going to, um, to study epigenetics and there are so many different types of, you know, histone modifications. And it's, it's even funny to think that, you know, it's not that recent and still the tools we had back then to, um, to you know, analyze, to ask what a certain modification is doing. I mean, this was really the early days of even uh, ChIP-seq and, um, I was actually, you know, the first person in the Weizmann Institute to be doing uh, chip seek for a modification. So that was, uh, um, it, it was kind of a, a trial uh, version back then, and uh, they offered us to, to participate in it. Um, so what we identified is that uh, ubiquitation of H2B is actually a modification that is associated with the uh, gene expression and it's associated with the transcribed region of genes from this like first chip seek study ever done uh, at the Whitestone Institute. And um, I then really dedicated my, my PhD to, to study its roles, you know, both in the context of transcription, but also uh, through a collaboration with the lab of uh, uh, Professor Yossi Arden in Tel Aviv University. We also identified roles for this modification in uh, DNA damage and repair pathways. And I think that, you know, the major uh, finding that we had was also related to the role of um, its modifiers, which are RNF20 and RNF40 in uh, cancer. 
And the idea is that, you know, through this regulation of, of gene expression, um, the RNF20 actually works as a tumor suppressor. And we see that, you know, it, it you know, by ubiquitating certain regions, it promotes oncogenic um, gene expression programs while, you know, suppressing uh, prominent tumor suppressors like P53, for example. So, you know, we did a lot of work on that both, and I, I always like this combination of, you know, both doing very, you know, mechanistic studies, um, like really trying to understand the role of a certain modification, but also connecting it with like eventually um, the, the phenotypes, which are, you know, in that case, doing a lot of like, um, um, biological um, cancer studies, such as, you know, identifying that in mice, when you knock down RNF20, you get uh, tumors and um, the identifying the role of this, of this uh, chromatin regulator as a tumor suppressor, which of course, you know, now we know very well that many of these chromatin regulators have very important roles in cancer. So going back to the chip experiment, how did you, if it was the early days of ChipSeq, how did you know that your antibody was a good one? So we actually generated the antibody. So it was the first antibody. Um, when we started working on uh, HIV regulation, and I say we, but actually the person who, um, who led these efforts was a, a PhD student who was already, you know, establishing the lab. I was just coming to the lab as a young uh, master's student. And, um, and joining him in this effort. So um, this was the original paper in HSL biology that he's the first author. And, um, and but what we did was actually to, to generate, we, we, we knew that if we really want to understand the role of this modification, we need an antibody, right? Like this is the basics for everything right now. So. Um, we, um, and it wasn't that straightforward back then because we, the, the idea was to generate this branch peptide that mimics the, you know, the ubiquitin on the H2B um, uh, tail. So, um, and then, you know, going through like screening, like tons of different antibodies and validating them. Um, when we had the antibody, um, we, we were able to, to easily validate it by, you know, just doing, again, like this knockdown experiment and see that you get reduced levels of the modification. But how did we know that it works for, for ChIP-seq? Basically, we didn't. We had no idea. We just tried it. And once we got the data and we analyzed it, then you can actually see that, you know, you get data that makes sense and you get peaks and, you know, that it, it looks okay. But yeah. Yeah. So later on in 2011, um, you also followed up on this story and looked more closely into the function of RNF20. Um, so what did you find then on the function of RNF20? So um, that was a so uh, you know after kind of publishing the first um, story, um, and it was just you know writing kind of the the, the middle of my PhD. I went to a um, conference. And um, in this conference, there were a lot of uh, uh, talks about RNA polymerase to pausing and regulation of transcriptional elongation, which, you know, until then I was, uh, you know, it, it wasn't quite clear to me to what extent, you know, transcription elongation 
actually takes a huge part in regulation of gene expression and not just you know, the initiation of transcription and the recruitment of the transcriptional machinery. And in this conference, there were also like some uh, talks about uh, TF2S, which is uh, one of the, um, uh, which is an important uh, uh, factor in transcriptional elongation. And that gave me the idea that maybe you know, some of the effects that we're seeing on gene expression um, are actually mediated by, you know, and because we see this in the transcribed region, not really in the, in the um, you know, transcriptional start side of genes, maybe the role of this modification is actually in, in you know, regulating elongation and, uh, you know, maybe this could be mediated partly at least by interaction with uh, by you know either positive or negative interaction with TF2S, so that actually started this whole project. And um, I you know I, I went back to the lab and um, as a starting point, I actually you know back then the way we you know now there are way fancier methods, but the way we looked at transcriptional elongation is just by trying to do a chip seek for RNA polymerase. Uh, at the end of the gene and at the beginning of the gene. And then you can like divide the ratio and see and kind of try to deduce how much of the polymerase actually reaches the end of the, of the gene. And by looking at that, we, we found out that indeed there is a prominent effect on, on elongation, which of course now is, is, is pretty straightforward. And we identified that, you know, for this specific set of genes, this is happening uh, via blocking of TF2S. And I think that, you know, it's also, you know, one of the main things that I learned is how context is so important when you're talking about chromatin, because, you know, we have all these modifications, we have all these chromatin regulators, and usually when you, you know, deplete a modification or you knock out a chromatin regulator, and, you know, despite the fact, it's, you know, for H2BU, for example, you basically see it's associated with the transcribed region of almost every expressed gene. So it's something very general. And still, when you knock down RNF20, you lose it completely. But for most genes, there is absolutely no effect. They are still transcribed, like, just as usual. And that's kind of puzzling because you think, why is it even there if it has no effect, if it doesn't affect their gene expression? And I think, you know, this is part of, of what I learned is that while, you know, we have these things that, you know, happen in, in many different places in our genomes and, uh, and seem to be a, a general feature, the context probably and the interaction with other histone modifications and the chromatin environment would really dictate whether it's important in this specific region or not. And what we found out, for example, is that while, you know, again, while HB, UB is associated with the transcribed region of many genes, when you knock, when you lose this modification, it seems that the specific set of genes that reside in closed chromatin, in like a, a closer context, are more affected for it, by it, probably because you really need you really need it to open these regions. Well, maybe when you have a gene that is already open, that even if you lose H two B U B, it doesn't really have any functional consequences. 
Um, so I think that, you know, every time you look at a certain modification, it's, it's really problematic to understand what is going on there unless you kind of understand the entire context of, of the epigenome in this uh, region. Yeah, when you talk about complex chromatin remodeling is also a, an important factor there, right? Um, you also looked in, into chromatin remodeling. What did you see there? So um, at a later study, I, you know, I really tried to understand, again, kind of going, I feel like my uh, career was really going from, at first, you know, thinking of very specific questions and thinking maybe very naively that, um, you know, a modification would have a certain role, either it's like opening or closing or something like that. And all you need to do is, you know, do some experiments to figure it out. So, uh, and then along the career, I figured out that you need to have a more systematic view to understand what a certain modification is doing. And it's not just going to be enough to look at, you know, uh, a very, you know, specific question. So what we try to do in order to address that, in, in order to really understand, you know, better the role of, of H2B regulation in, in cells, what we try to do is to generate um, uh fully synthetic, like a nucleosome array, 12 nucleosomes, recombinant ones, that would either have like, uh, you like be 100% H2B ubiquitination or would have only H2B, which is not modified at all. So that's a, again, like a very, um, you know, kind of a one zero approach to either have your, your chromatin fully ubiquitinated or not at all and then try to use it, um, uh, you know, for spec studies in a, a, to just get a nuclear extract incubated with, with the question being of which proteins talk to HVUV, which proteins interact with it, um, and perhaps, you know, even the other way around, which proteins are actually inhibited from binding to chromatin when you have uh, H2BUV. <laughs> and, and that's where we, found, we identified um, the, the SWISNF complex as uh, specifically interacting with H2BUV and you know, having, again, probably a role in mediating some of the effects of, of um, this modification. And this was a collaboration with um, the lab of uh, Wolfgang Fischlein, uh, was then in Germany. And it was a really nice, I think, to combine their very biochemical approach of, of doing the mass spec with all the, you know, the things that we were good at, which is doing all the follow-up, you know, biological experiments and trying to understand it in a cell context. Did you follow up on this study or was that the last thing that you did in this context? No, it was actually the last thing because, you know, this study was already published when I started my postdoc. So um, I, um, and my, my postdoc was really dedicated to, to actually trying to establish a completely new approach. But I have to say that, you know, I, I'm, now that I have my own lab, I'm always, thinking, you know, thinking about, you know, we should go back to the HUBUV and try to do some work on that again, because uh, I, I think it's a really important modification yeah. and I'm really interested in it still. 
So talking about or when we come to the things that you are focused on uh, more recently, um, yeah, you switched your focus uh, into the space of single, not mo cells, but single molecule technologies, which yes. is <laughs> an important difference. Um, th this this led to publication in 2016 with a title "Single Molecule Decoding: Single Molecule Decoding of Combinatorically Modified Nucleosomes." Um, so this is something that you're also talking about at, at conferences and I saw this at the Amber meeting. So what did you do there and what will it enable you to do or us to do? <laughs> so I, when I finished my PhD, I was um, really frustrated by the notion that, you know, epigenetics is so important. And obviously, you know, we know that it's important in embryonic development. And we know that it's crucial for, you know, regulating uh, processes of tumorigenesis. And yet, the only, the only methodology that we really have to understand that is to do uh, CHIPSIC. And while, you know, CHIPSIC has been really instrumental in, a, you, know, leading, you know, it revealed so many important insights about for which modification, where it's located in the genome, and uh, identifying regulatory elements in the genome, such as, you know, promoters and enhancers. And, but, um, you know, eventually it's also very limited because what we know from CHIPSIC, we know that, you know, certain regions have a, a certain modification, but because we are averaging signal over many, many cells, so how can we even know what, what is really going on in the cell on the DNA? So. When we say, for example, that enhancers are, you know, marked by K27SL and K4ME1. So what does it mean? I mean, did, did, is it marked there together? I mean, and, and it's, it seems so basic, right? It seems like really basic questions as, you know, which modifications actually go together on the same nucleosome and which are, are excluded and, when we get this peak in CHIPSIC, I always ask myself, so what does it mean that, that what, like 5% of the cells had this modification or 100% or 60%? How can or we is even, it even try? Yeah. How many, how many nucleosome does it, nucleosomes does it represent? Um. Exactly. Like how many like nucleosomes are, are even in that region? And so I, I, I was really frustrated by the fact that it seems to be like, really basic questions that that we don't understand. And, and I couldn't really see how we can try to address these questions with the current technologies that, um, that, that we have available. And so when I was um, interviewing for my postdoc, I actually went to a, to a couple of labs and uh, to, to interview. And then I met with Brad Bernstein, um, who was my postdoc mentor. And we started talking about it and the idea of, of using single molecule microscopy to maybe try to address uh, these questions. And I have to say that, you know, the meeting with Brad was so um, stimulating. And I felt, you know, it, that from the moment that I, I went to, into his office and we started having these like scientific discussions and the idea, of, and it, it really was not what Brad's lab was about. So Brad is um, uh, doing a lot of uh, cancer epigenetics, and he's actually one of the main, you know, world leaders in um, in 
you know, doing uh, chip sick in many types of tissues and cancers and actually identifying so many of these uh, very important concepts that, that we learned from, from these kind of studies. And I felt that, um, but, but Brad is also a big fan of technologies. And um, when, you know, we met uh, during my postdoc interview and we had this very stimulating discussion and I just decided that this is something that I, I want to try. And even though the idea was really not formulated at all. So it was basically just, you know, kind of, uh, and I had I had zero experience in, in microscopy or single molecule imaging or, you know, anything that, that has to do with that. Actually, my, my experience was really classical molecular biology and cancer biology. Um, but Brad and I decided to, um, you know, give it a chance. We, we, I wrote a proposal and decided to come to, to his lab. Um, so people always tell you, you know, you don't choose a postdoc lab from, you know, by the project. But for me, it was not, I, I really wanted to do this specific project. And it all started from this initial conversation that we had. And in retrospect, um, I, I think it was a really um, good decision to follow my heart in this. Um, and so I joined Brad's lab. We actually, um, uh, Brad actually hired uh, a physicist to, to come and, and, and build this turf microscope. And like it, within a very short time period, teach me everything that I know um, on microscopy and single molecule imaging. Of course, later, you know, during my postdoc, I also, you know, I learned a lot on listening to podcasts and YouTube. And uh, it, it's amazing. It's amazing how many things you can learn online right now. And then I also did a very, um, I, I took microscopy courses to, to learn more. But for me, it was a really, um, you know, new experience. And the, the idea behind it, the motivation was that I wanted to, to figure out a technology that would really allow us to address this question of the histone code and really understand, you know, to actually image nucleosomes, individual nucleosomes, and see how they are modified and try to understand, um, you know, which modifications actually do happen on the same nucleosome and which are excluded. And we decided to start this, you know, looking at stem cells and differentiation, just because this was, it seemed to be like the first question that, that we should address with this. And also, you know, um, Brad was um, the, Brad was a person who identified bivalency um, in stem cells. So bivalency is a concept of nucleosomes having both the active mark, um, which is a K4 ME3 and the repressive mark, which is K27 ME3. But there was really always a question whether bivalent nucleosomes actually exist because, you know, as we said, when you get these peaks in ChIP-seq, you, you're never really sure whether it's coming from the same cells or not. So um, I was intrigued by that and wanted, I really wanted to image these bivalent nucleosomes and it, indeed we found them. But we found also a lot of other interesting combinations. Um, so this is what my, 
lab is mainly focusing on um, these days as well in applying this technology that really allows us to, to you know, zoom in on, on single nucleosomes and, you know, decode their combinatorial histone modifications in order to understand better um, the, in, to understand better in a, in a more systematic way, not just looking at one modification at a time, but again, really understanding the context um, on you know, what epigenetics is, is doing in different biological systems. And you know, while in my postdoc, I focused on stem cells, now my, can my lab is interested in cancer epigenetics, so we are mostly doing work related to cancer. But so you can image the single nucleosome, so you know it has um, three, four, five uh, modifications, but you don't get like the sequence context, right? So you don't. So we actually do. So the way, but but this is still a work in progress. So the okay. way the technology works, very briefly, is yeah, that uh, we take cells, like any cells for that matter, it could be you know stem cells or cancer cells, whatever we want, and we chop their chromatin with microcochal nucleus. So basically, MNIs, it cuts between the nucleosomes, so you get these mononucleosomes. What we then do is we use very simple enzymatic reactions to actually um, label the tag the nucleosomes with fluorophore and, and anchor them, capture them on a surface. The reason why we need this to capture them is that this entire technology is uh, based on uh, total internal reflection microscopy, TIRF. And the, the main idea of, of TIRF microscopy is that you only um, see what is bound to a surface. So with TIRF, most of the light that hits the glass is actually reflected back. And you get a very narrow um, excitation wave. It's called an evanescent wave that decays very um, quickly when uh, it moves from the surface. And this is what allows you to, so you only see molecules that are within a hundred to 200 nanometers of the surface. And this is what allows you to actually get the sensitivity and to, to image single fluorophores because you don't have all this background from the surrounding solution. So what we do is we, we actually capture nucleosomes on the surface that are labeled with a fluorophore and then we scan our flow cells. So every spot that we see is a single nucleosome that was anchored to, to the surface. And once you know we know, so we have our nucleosomes distributed on our surface, then we add to our flow cell antibodies targeting different system modifications. So each antibody would have a different color to it, would have a different fluorophore. And what's really important here is that the antibody is actually is conjugated to a fluorophore. So there are no secondary antibodies. The primary antibody is conjugated to a fluorophore. And then what's super nice about this technology, and I found it by accident actually, is that the antibodies, you can actually see them go on and off. So, you know, when I first tried to, to you know, develop this technology, so I had my nucleosomes on the surface and I thought, of, I thought of this whole thing kind of like an ELISA essay in which now you add your antibodies, you incubate them for like two hours and then you wash and, and you take a picture. And for, for some antibodies, it seemed to have worked for canine cell, for example, probably because if antibodies bind there quite tightly, 
But for many of the antibodies, all these, you know, K4, ME3, K27, ME3, I got very few spots, which didn't make any sense. I, you know, I always try to correlate my data with mass spec to see whether I'm getting things that make sense. And, you know, then at, at some point by accident, I added the antibodies and I, I um, let the microscope continue to, to image. And what I found, what I suddenly saw is that, first of all, you know, despite the fact that you have all these labeled antibodies in your solution, because of the turf and because it only excites a very, you know, narrow um, uh, window. So basically you, you only see the, you kind of see a haze, but only when an antibody is actually bound to a target, then you get a spot on the surface. So you don't need to wash or anything. You can just add your antibodies and you can image over time, like taking a, a picture every 15 minutes. And eventually all you have to do is capture all of these binding events and you get a full picture of exactly, you know, which nucleosomes were, were modified. And, you know, we don't think about that, but antibodies actually do have on and off rates and when you do the experiment this way, you, that allows you to capture all of the binding events, which I think a very, it's a very important um, point when you want to ask yourself how many nucleosomes are modified and actually get a quantitative result rather than just like enrichment assays. And then you can also do a sequencing on the same spot on the flow cell? So yeah, so basically what we do is um, after we image all the you know, modifications, there is no fixation. The nucleosome is actually a very stable complex. So what, what we can do is we can just wash the antibodies from the flow cell. And then if you just increase the salt concentration in your flow cell, you would remove the proteins, but have the DNA strands in identical positions. And at, at this stage, you know, during my postdoc, I actually, you know, I thought, okay, how am I going to get the sequence of these molecules? And that was by far the, the most uh, challenging aspect of this project. So, you know, at first I thought, you know, maybe I'll do some hybridizations, like with fish, with fluorescent probes. And I tried that and it somehow worked, but it's so low throughput. Um, so, you know, I, I, then I thought, you know, I collaborated with another lab to try to zap nucleosomes from the surface and sequence them using conventional technologies. But at some point, I um, found out about this company that is called SQL, S-E-Q-L-L, -L, and I, you know, and what they're doing is using single molecule imaging in a very similar way to, to the way that I used it to do single molecule DNA uh, sequencing by synthesis. So the chemistry is, is in a way sim quite similar to Illumina, only it's actually single molecule. You don't have any amplifications and it's basically worked in repeated cycles in which you, know, you add uh, polymerase with a, a, a one of the nucleotides, uh, again, labeled with a fluorophore and you can image where it's incorporated then cleave the floor for and add the next one. And you do this in repeated cycles. So actually the, the first sequencing experiment that we did in the lab, um, I actually did manually for like 48 hours in the lab straight, 
pipetting things like, um, you know, to the flow cell every, you know, it's like 120 cycles. It was a nightmare. And the data we got was really crappy because, you know, when you are doing things manually and especially in the middle of the night, it would never be as accurate as, you know, having a fluidic system to do it automatically. And then uh, right now, you know, for what we have in the lab, for example, is uh, with this company and we're still collaborating with them on it. Uh, we generated a fluidic, we, we custom designed a fluidic system that is controlling all these sequencing cycles automatically. So basically you first email, you know, do all the imaging of the modifications and then um, you just press play and you start all the sequencing cycles, which still um, the, the reason why I say it's work in progress is that um, still we don't get the throughput that we want. So it's really hard because, you know, to get the molecules to stay there and be, you know, stable for, a long, for the time that it takes to, to sequence. So we mostly get very short reads, but we still were able to, to, identi to identify really cool things with it. And for example, we, we now have a project in the lab in which we analyze the modifications and, um, the, and sequence nucleosomes from plasma. And we show that we can use it for diagnostics of rectal cancer and actually identify colon as a tissue of origin. So I think that, you know, for for some applications, it's it's really um, uh, promising what we can do with it. Um, and it's really a game changer in, in some fields. And for other things, I think, you know, the power of looking at combinations at the single molecule level, um, we were able to, to get some really meaningful insights from it, even without uh, sequencing or, you know, with very low throughput sequencing, which is, you know, what we get right now. So to finish off this interview, I have two more uh, general questions. The first one, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Uh, there were many frustrating <laughs> times during my career. And I think that, um, honestly, I don't know uh, a single uh, person who's uh, doing science for a long time who did not you know, reach these situations. Whether it's, um, you know, at some point uh, during my postdoc, things just stopped working. I didn't know why. I spent months on trying to calibrate every aspect in the system again. I couldn't understand why, you know, suddenly things just, you know, don't work. Um, I'll tell you that after, you know, months of work, I found out that one of the companies changed the pH of one of the buffers. And it completely screwed with the experiments. I mean, the single molecule is very sensitive, so it could be really frustrating. And, you know, I think on, on top of that, um, there are a lot of frustrating, you know, uh, situations, you know, both with, both with experiments and also, you know, as we all know, the publication process that, that could be sometimes, you know, so frustrating and, and hard. Um, especially for, you know, young labs. But I think what's really important is just to keep going and uh, to, to have the passion for what you do and to really believe uh, that, you know, this is to, to enjoy it and believe that it's important because otherwise you're just like 
you, you're getting so many, you're knocked down from everywhere. Like, you know, it's, it's, um, I always say that if you don't have the passion for it, don't, don't go into doing a PhD and continue with it. Cause it's, it's not an easy work, especially emotionally. Yeah. It will eat you alive at some point. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So in the last 35 minutes, we have taken a journey th uh, through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? Um, I, I, only, I honestly believe that uh, some of the most important findings that we have are right now with the research that we are doing in the lab. And I hope that you know, all these things are in process of being published. Uh, so I hope that uh, you will all see it soon. Uh, but um, as I mentioned, one of the most important things that I'm super excited right now is um, the ability to use this single molecule uh, system for diagnostics of plasma circulating nucleosomes. I, I think this would be a game changer in the field of liquid biopsies. And we have super exciting results that uh, we are now preparing for um, publication, uh, really highlighting, you know, the advantages of, of this technology, because, you know, in plasmas are so few nucleosomes. And on the one hand, on, on the other hand, you really need to get a lot of information in order to do correct diagnostics. So it's not just enough to look at one thing. And so this is where a systematic approach using the single molecule, which is also highly quantitative, I think it would really change things in, in this field. So I hope that you know you will see that uh, published um, soon. And on the other hand, um, we are also doing a lot of hardcore, you know, just basic cancer epigenetic research, mostly focusing on um, um, DAPG uh, with a K27M mutation. So um, these oncohistones that are um, important in pediatric gliomas and really driving uh, diseases, uh, this, this devastating cancer in, in children. And again, our single molecule is super important here because now for the first time, we can actually look at mutant nucleosomes, which are also, um, which are only a minor fraction of the, of the uh, pool of nucleosomes in, in the cells versus wild-type nucleosomes and identify how they are, you know, epigenetically different. So um, I, we, it helped us to identify some new mechanistics um, that are involved, new mechanisms involved in, in this disease. And uh, I hope that this will come out soon as well. Fingers crossed that uh, the publication process will, uh, will be so speedy. <laughs> so thank you, Efrat, for, for your time and for being on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.